horses in the sun. I'm supposed to get it and ride and done. Mm-hmm. All the tired horses in the sun. I'm supposed to get it and ride and done. Prior to you and I meeting, I knew that you liked to talk. I've been um, I've been told that you like to talk and that you're an intellectual. But what I've really been surprised by is by how many questions you actually ask. You're not just talking the whole time. Well, um. well the history of surfing <laughs> is rhetorical. It's impossible to properly answer the question without getting to the bones of it all. Well, even without surfing, though, like last night at dinner, you went out of your way to go sit with, like you were sitting in one side of the table, chatting with people who you knew, getting catching up, and you made an effort to get up and go sit at a different table with people you didn't know and immediately sit down and ask, who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Even this morning, Ryan, that we saw, Ryan from Orlando, we saw at the beach when we were leaving, it's like, I introduced the two of you, and you could have just said your pleasantries, hi, how's it going, nice to see you, and we could have left. And the actual the tide was moving in, and we were on the beach, so we had reason to move. But instead, you said, Ryan, what do you do for work? Really? Tell me more about that. So um, it seems that you genuinely enjoy meeting people. Well, um, Kelly's like that. Is he? It sticks with me when Kelly said some years ago that he would take L.A. businessmen out into a lineup who'd never been much in the water at all on a surfboard, probably on a flat day, and then get 50 yards out of the lineup and say, now turn around. And they look at something they'd never seen before. Well, there's the beach. Surf stoked. You know what I mean? Uh, at Byron Bay, very crowded surf. People riding the wrong boards. Idiots on the wrong boards, making waves. But then there are the beginners that are everywhere. The learn to surf schools are amazing. Not great, but they're amazing. Rusty Miller is the only guy who does one-on-one, which is amazing, wonderful. But uh, I recognize how good it is to be in a chaotic, packed lineup in such a situation. Unlike Snapper Rocks or Lennox Head, where everyone knows how to surf and everyone's willing to kill one another in order to catch a wave. Here, you can, uh, you can sit in the maelstrom and watch a complete Gumby take off on a wave, standing, going in the foam to the beach or riding a wall for 200 metres, knowing it's the best wave of their life. Everyone rides the best wave of their life and I always remember that. Everyone's road has wonderful parts to it. it, The incredible thing is even with someone you've never met who you'll never see again there's a relativity that's no different to your own. Supposed to get it and ride and done.
Wow. That's the voice of Derek Hind with your warm welcome back to the show, Surf Splendor. If you've listened to my recent chat with Andrew Kidman, he mentioned that Derek was in the process of replicating his life's quiver, meaning he is shaping, actually shaping all of the important boards in his life. When Andrew told me this, I thought that he meant uh, Derek was replicating every single board that he had ever owned. And I didn't get clarification on that, but it seems that it's kind of just the important boards, the boards that informed Derek's evolution, his life, his learning. And I reached out to Derek last month. I wanted to hear about the project. Um, He's calling it Heinlein, by the way, H-Y-N-D, like his last name, Heinlein. And he said that he's currently working his way through the mid-1970s. He's somewhere in between 1973 and 1977. He went on to say that, quote, I'm still only riding FFF, that's Farfield Free Friction, by the way, Finless to the layperson. But he said, quote, I'm still only on FFFF boards. The pass has now had its best bank in 50 years for a full 12 months. So it's been a phenomenal time to evolve that side of my surfing. This Heinlein project came about because I've known for a lot of years that my peers, no matter the generation, stopped stepping up their design work once they were off the pro tour. It blows me away how a sense of pro tour accomplishment seems to end the progression when the exact opposite should be the case. I would argue that Josh Kerr is certainly an exception to that rule, but yes, an absolute astute observation from Derek, no doubt, as a lot of his observations are. Uh, I invited Derek back onto this podcast to discuss Heinlein, and he said that he would love to, but he wants to shape his way through the 1970s first, just soak in that experience so that we'll have even more to talk about. And I say that I invited him back onto this podcast because our first conversation, this one that you're going to hear today, was recorded back in November of 2018, and it originally published in January of 2019, so about two and a half years ago now. And in that time, a lot has changed. Derek survived some very perilous health issues. His house burned down wherein he lost his entire quiver of boards, among, of course, many other irreplaceable mementos. So he and I actually have a lot to unpack when we reconvene, and I'd be surprised if we can fit that entirely into one episode. But for those uninitiated, born in 1957 in Sydney, Australia, Hind has authored hundreds of surf articles and columns, making him among the most prolific surf writers of all time. He earned a bachelor's degree in economics in 1978 from Sydney University before joining the Pro Tour in 1979. In 1980, he suffered a horrifying accident while surfing in a heat in South Africa. His fin punctured his eye and he permanently lost his vision in that eye as a result. You will hear all of those gory details in today's episode. Amazingly, Half-blinded, he returned to competition the following year and finished seventh in the world. He would retire in 1982 at the age of 25, completely dejected and disheartened, again, for reasons that you'll hear today. Those are kind of his important career highlights. Um, The one other detail that you should know about Derek, it's really important to his story, but I already referred to it, is that he actually hasn't surfed a surfboard with fins in over 14 years. 
The rationale for that is completely unrelated to his eye injury, although um, that is certainly up for subconscious analysis, I suppose. And Derek mainly self-shapes all of his friction-free boards. They are nearly all asymmetrical, and though they don't have any fins, they do have kind of ornate channels of various lengths, widths, and depths. So lots of hard edges that exist as a way of controlling the board, but without the bulky disruption of a fin. Again, the idea being friction-free. And I have photos of those boards on surfsplendorpodcast.com. I've also got footage from Peter King of when Derek paddled out at J-Bay on his 11-footer in 2015, just after Mick Fanning narrowly survived that famed shark attack during the finals of the J-Bay Open. Right after that happened, the WSL cleared the lineup. The waves were absolutely pumping. So Derek seized the opportunity to surf flawless J-Bay all alone, despite the obvious inherent risk. Yeah, I watched it on the uh, on the net and uh, and thought that might be a good time to go surf. No, not at all. I waited an hour. I did see the fin though. I saw a still picture of the fin, and that was a big shot. My conversation with Derek, today's conversation, was recorded at the Florida Surf Film Festival, where Derek and I were both serving as jurors reviewing the films. So shout out to Kevin Miller and John Brooks for hosting us. And honestly, hopefully that Florida Surf Film Festival can happen again as this pandemic kind of comes to a slow. Derek had flown all the way in from Australia. He and I had spent three days surfing the small but fun waves of New Smyrna Beach. Between surfing, our social obligations for the film festival and his jet lag, We were only able to carve out two hours on the final day to record this. I showed up at his cottage promptly on time. I knocked on his door repeatedly, but I got no response. His boots and his surfboard were on the deck, so I figured that he had to be inside. I felt the door handle and it was unlocked. So I opened it and I announced myself. The living room and the kitchen were entirely still and silent. I certainly didn't feel comfortable enough venturing into his bedroom loft where even if he was sleeping, I really wouldn't want to wake him. That's kind of a breach of intimacy for newfound friends. But from the front doorstep, I could see kind of just over that loft railing and I figured it was worth one final shout. So I gave it, Derek, and he sprang alert into a seated position. His hair was tousled, he was wide-eyed. I had woken him from a deep, Most recent dog, a good one. Is it a positive dream? Wow. Well, I'm in the middle of jet lag, and uh, there's some of the great uh, sleeps. I got back from Jeffreys Bay into Australia. Just remembering the dream right now, and the last part of the dream before you said knock knock, was my dog Chop running past me, looking for someone, and because I was away for two months longer than I was meant to be, 
uh, the uh, good old municipal pound picked him up. He was a runner. He was a great blue healer, but he was a runner all around the neighbourhood just uh, finding all the bits and pieces to do. Such a great personality. Uh, the pound picked him up. They'd got the shits because he'd been on the rantan too much and uh, offloaded him to another party uh, and they wouldn't give me the address. Oh no. As it turned out, I didn't particularly have a leg to stand on because it was still, the dog was still registered with its last owner. Okay. Bummer. Yeah, bummer. One can only hope that it's happy, but uh, yeah. So it was kind of positive because he was still just uh, happy as a big galoot running around the neighborhood. Yeah. It's a fond memory. Um, Dogs. I love dogs. Me too. Do you normally remember your dreams? Uh, That's pretty interesting because I used to write down my dreams for about two years straight. I'd make myself wake up and write them down. This was through the 80s. If I was to find that book and read it these days, I'd be able to remember every second of uh, the dream and what happened in it that I didn't write down. Quite amazing. It is. I mean, your memory is pretty amazing. I've just learned in the last day or two. Your recall for details about contest results and that sort of thing is pretty um, profound. But the the remembering dreams thing, I sometimes have really vivid ones that I remember. And then other times have a lot of emotion attached to whatever it is I was dreaming about. But I instantly forget it the moment I wake up. You know, I'll try to retell it at breakfast and I can't. So I haven't quite identified why I'm able to remember at some points and why I'm not at others, you know? Just on the recall with contests and whatnot, I just flashed then that the reason would be it was such an emotional career during and after competing and writing coaching The reason being, the subjectivity was so intense for everybody. Everything was on edge because it wasn't a straight game. Mm. Not saying it was corrupt, but there were twists and turns in so many permutations of how it could go. When things weren't finalized until the verdict came at the end, no one knew what the outcome was going to be. It would lock into the mind so much. I'm sure everyone feels that way to this day. I mean, do you feel it was more that way then than it is now? Oh, the only thing that's changed is the, uh, the call that comes constantly through the heat with updates. Just, okay. just having watched uh, the Momentum Generation, Potts's uh, part in it, is intense he is there in the moment 30 years ago 25 years ago 30 years ago just remembering the arrival of uh, Slater but also 
exactly how it was, mm. particularly on his charge through 89, I guess, when Kelly was, I guess, the grommet, the rookie. Um, we'll get into more of that. Back to dreams, though, momentarily. Why did you stop writing them down? Just like a dream. Can't remember. <laughs> um, speaking of writing or books that are perhaps lost, Keckley wants to know, um, the, the Little Black Book, where is it now? Yeah, Matt Keckley. Hello, what a guy. I just got a shiver, that little black book. There were four of them. Okay. Two of which were done through the one season in 84. I still have them. What are they? Oh, they were masterpieces. And I'll tell you one thing. The judges hated me having them because the detail in my black book was so incredible for every heat these guys ever surfed during the uh, world tour that uh, just through the stats I knew far more of what went down in a heat than any judge, than any head judge. To this day, uh, speaking of dreams and recall, I can go back to the little black book, to many of Keck's heats actually, and remember exactly what was done through every part of those heats, which became a case of, uh, to begin with, what board the guy was riding, both, who built the boards, length of the heat, positioning to begin the heat, time taken to catch the first wave for both. The standard of uh, turns from very poor to uh, very good tactics within the heat. I was really trying to get into the mind of both surfer and the opponent uh, and, and the error rate hmm. and the error rate was uh, the most valuable thing because for a surfer either of which to come in without errors was very rare and just on the very poor to very good I didn't want to write down any scores I just wanted it to be obvious how the surfers both did to come in with a series of an average set of rides that were good usually meant you could scrape through a close heat when waves didn't really determine the outcome it was just the uh, I guess the judges giving thumbs up or thumbs, thumbs down. But once it got to uh, any very goods, you generally were looking like you were going to win two very goods as opposed to one very good. Mm. With Okalupo in 
1984 up until the OP Pro at Huntington in which he had suffered a severe physical breakdown associated with a mental breakdown during uh, the three weeks in between France and uh, California due to drug use and uh, a complete dietary change. He uh, forced me to change the scoring system. I had to institute excellent and excellent plus and nothing had, I, nothing had ever been seen like that before in, in my eight years of being in events and covering events, the level that he was achieving was just so extraordinary. Mm. But then once he hit California, the poor guy, the most I ever scored him for the rest of that season, which ran up until April the next year at Bells Beach, was maybe one good in every, in the sum total of every Haiti soft. Wow. A complete collapse. Wow. Well, before Huntington Beach, he was 1,800 points ahead on the uh, ratings. A massive amount. He was going to walk it in. Yeah. Um, that black book, those four black books, that sounds like a tremendous amount of work. So are you actually sitting on the beach watching every single heat surfed and taking those copious notes? I am writing as the surfer is, surfers are writing. I became really adept at very tiny writing and that would make Keck laugh his head off because uh, people were constantly amazed at the hieroglyphics that were inside. But then eventually they could go, oh yeah, I can read this. Yeah. That's amazing. At one point, a few years later, uh, Luke Egan judged me in a heat when I was mucking around in an event at Jeffrey's Bay. That was pretty hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny when Keck mentioned that to me, uh, I had no idea what he was referencing. And so, you know, the black book is commonly known as it's like, a list of your sexual conquests or at least an address book of the women that you know throughout the world so i was like shoot and now that i know the real answer i'm not sure if i'm uh, disappointed at all or whether it's a better story this way well it is the conquest book good point it's uh it's gladiator time yeah yeah it's a good point um we have a lot to discuss and Let's start with acknowledging that we are here at the Florida Surf Film Festival. And um, you're, we're both here as jurors. I know that you've made a couple of surf films, and at least one, Proland, and you actually organized a um, surf film festival of your own back in 2001. I'm curious, do you still watch surf films? I know you did in preparation for this event, but when you're at home... And a new film comes out, do you open up your computer and click play? Someone sent me a link to a surf film the other day. 
nothing to do with this festival. It was a trailer, that's right. I did watch the trailer, but was singularly unimpressed. Mm -hmm. Everything's got to get really tightened up for anybody who does a film these days due to the severe law of diminishing returns after 50 years, 50 plus of uh, 60 years of surf films. Right. It's like rock and roll. Within the first eight years, every basic chord structure had been completed. Earl Ray, people like that. Anything else was just a variation on the theme. Incredibly interesting when you come across, say, the impact of Jimmy Page, yet most had already been done, even by that time. He was just like a wizard, modifying that which had come before him. So when I sit down and listen to soundtracking for a surf film, to me, that's more important than the actual visual of who's writing. Everything's been done before. Soundtrack is an opportunity to step out. Interesting. I built a film called Proland with uh, the soundtracking of uh, my friend from Newport Beach in Sydney. That's where I grew up. Mark Pickering, who, uh, that's, his nickname's Picker. Uh, he was with me every step of the way during the construction of that film, which was based upon the pro tour in which uh, Danny Wills and Mick Campbell barely lost out to Kelly in the final straight, uh, a film that I had no intention of making as the tour came through Australia. It was only in Japan when I sensed that Danny Wills was about to do something incredible that I bought a shitty little camera and started following he and Mick Campbell around because they had an incredible trainer in Rob Roland Smith, such a fine motivator who'd come from the Australian rugby league world. And sure enough, he won the two biggest events of the year back to back in those days, there was a points loading on the big events, and those were the only two of the year. During the course of that year, uh, Shane Beshin and Sonny were on a bit of a roll as well. But Beshin in particular had a really big shot. He became the catalyst for a lot of change on the tour. The dream tour is down to Shane Beshin during that year. I think he may have only come fourth, but uh, he was so eloquent in his disgust at what was happening within the system, locations and judging-wise, that he said, you know what, Derek, this tour shits me to the pit of my stomach. Because of that, 
I, uh, in the next year, got together with a bunch of pros and uh, we agreed to try and launch a breakaway tour. And it ended up having the backing of IMG and TWI just before the dot-com crash. It would have happened without that uh, big bubble bursting in the USA. Uh, Mark McCormack, the founder, died mm. in the middle of this process, causing a power vacuum within the companies. Uh what was Beshin's complaint about the judging, and what? How would you rectify that with this breakaway tour? Uh, gosh, it's now just about twenty years since then. The reason why I'm curious, as you think about it, is because I'm going to argue that those same complaints are happening today. Oh, the same complaints were happening in 1976. The first event on the pro side I ever went in at Bell's Beach as a 19 year old, exactly the same complaints. One would never be sure how the powers that be would be adjudicating your ride. Essentially, Jack McCoy, myself and a very well known silent partner with the surfers on a highly compressed entry list for the year, plus wild cards in each event, would be with the head judge post-heat, reviewing the heats. The surfers who had ridden included, the result would be known, except it wouldn't be publicly known. The block, the gang of 12 surfers and four wildcards would review and give their assent or dissent because the tour was going to go to dream locations. There was going to be no live official result until the end of each day. And the systems during each day were going to be up to a depth of five different systems okay. used. Every surfer would be surfing up to five times. There would be no elimination. Now when I was 17 in 74, the greatest moment in my pro surfing memory happened when I was just a kid at North Narrabeen Beach, watching, I think it was a field of 24, competing over cumulative rounds where no one got eliminated. The feel-good factor for every single surfer throughout the uh, 2SM Coca-Cola surfer bout was extraordinary. The fan, it was as if it was all angled towards the fan. He or she got to return to the beach every single day and watch the leaderboard battles for their the favourite surfer from the surf movies, Barry Kaniapuni at North Narrabeen Beach at two foot 
right-handers still uh, fading down the face and doing his pivot bottom turns and pointing, hitting the lip and dropping, leaving people stunned. They're, they're imagining him at 15-foot sunset doing exactly the same thing. It was the field of Kevin Costner. I tell you what, hmm. field of dreams, man. This is what I was trying to get back to. And every surfer who uh, signed the letter of intent, and thank you very much, lads, for doing that, they knew what was about to go down. Happy days. I wonder, to implement something like that, obviously it's radical change, and it would either take an entirely different business like you guys were setting up, and obviously surfers willing to make that jump, Nowadays, I think they could implement versions of that um, without radically changing their business model or abandoning what they're already doing. Bullshit. Really? I mean, what about the idea of, I like your idea of the judges reviewing everything after the heat, right? You look at the 30 minutes, look what transpired, and then you make your judgment. That doesn't work. You can do it with a small compressed field. The judge is in with the surfers. Um, the f- part about the judge, the surfers being in with the judges is fascinating. I had not thought about that before. I also you can't do it with a, a big field, though. I, I agree with you 100%. The field's way too big. We talked about this at breakfast, I think. But also, I don't see a reason for the judges to be on site any longer. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're all... I don't believe, you, believe you're saying this. Sorry. The memory is coming back. The head judge was on site in this tour. It in, was only, in the breakaway tour yeah, that you did. The only on. judge on site, my mistake, was the head judge. Okay. The others were around the planet, including a Coliseum aspect of the mob. They were all around the world, also with one judge, one judging capability. Their overall score in which they would have to uh, lock in points would be rated in that time it took in which the surfers were going to go. Okay. So they would also have the ability to be one of the five judges. Okay. The head judge, uh, in a perverse opportunity for uh, him to uh, really step up publicly, whereas everyone knew in the past, stepped up privately and uh, distorted the results depending on his feelings at the end of the heat, especially on the last wave exchange when the results could be locked in without anything else happening. Right. Was uh, going to have to face his makers in the pro surfers. Yeah. Because the pro surfers did make the judges. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's very interesting. I just think there's uh when you're at the beach let's say for a an event that's really well attended maybe the u.s open or the brazil event um you're so hang on but what you've just sorry what you've just <laughs> described is the reason why the tour had to break away uh bleacher events packs of people at beach breaks to get away from that mayhem we were going where people hadn't gone before it's very interesting how the search came on uh, two years later 
because uh, this tour was a combination of uh, Jack McCoy's work with Billabong and uh, uh, his ability to create mini events mm. uh, up on, say, the northwest of Australia was going to be translated around the planet. Uh, until this day, I haven't really realized the power of those moments in dictating what I'd love to do with Tom Curran after he got off the tour, because the poor bastard never been on one solitary surf trip, excepting trying to hunt down his father with the George brothers in 1985 in Costa Rica, I think it was. So uh, everything's interwoven. Tom Kern had never been on a surf trip other than for competitive purposes up until? That's crazy. Uh, of course, being in France was a perpetual surf trip for him. Sure. But a bit like in the Wayne Lynch uh, situation where he could disappear up a French beach and not be seen. Right. Um, so you are credited with inventing the search and developing the search for Rip Curl. What exactly, let's get into that a little bit, what exactly was the impetus for that and why was it so needed? When a company almost goes belly up, as in 48 hours notice. Oh, wow. It's amazing how the minds focus on something needing to be done. Uh, in a vastly comical way, Rip Curl is in the process of coming out with the 50th anniversary book of, uh, of Rip Curl. And I was asked to comment, refused many times. Pico, my musical mate, was asked to comment, point blank, refused, told them where to go. Hmm. Uh, we knew that in-house sculpting that would be done to the history of the company. No one gets to discuss objectivity in the history of a surf company because of the shit in any company mm -hmm. that goes down behind closed doors. But the way things got shifted about the origin of the search campaign, mind-blowing. Hilarious how we were all called into an office around the notorious long boardroom table. The owners, Brian Singer and Doug Warbrick, standing at the head of the table, they didn't even sit down. Grant Forbes, the part, uh, the other owner, minor share, uh, sitting down. He, uh, he was essentially a very interested party at the moment because he was more into design. Uh, and they laid it all out for us. The bank was singularly unimpressed with the way the company had, in the classic sense, peppered itself with too many departments. The returns weren't coming in. They had checked out, I guess, the, uh, uh, the way, the, the manner in which the company was doing its uh, marketing, its advertising, and they as well had determined it was uh, not that great. So there it was. We had minutes because in Torquay, Victoria, 
Brian Singer, Varip Cole and Alan Green. <laughs> uh, these two guys, Claw, Doug Warbrick, fantastic, fantastic people. But Brian and Alan Green from Quicksilver, these two guys, they make career decisions for themselves and people within their companies within seconds and they'll stick to them. So we had minutes, which was a long time for uh, Singding. Minutes to come up with a plan that was going to save the company. As uh, Singer roared after the moment happened in that boardroom, it was, you see, that's why I pay you bastards to come up with something because in his eyes we hadn't really done anything in the past five years i guess nor had he nor had claw they uh, they knew they were up shit creek at any rate uh curran had come off the greatest performance ever seen at hallie which was him winning on the uh non-logoed yellow railer to win the world cup uh the high point probably of uh uh, my work in film because at the time um, given that I came up with the search and its implementation I was put with Sonny Miller uh, from Go to Woe from Beach to Edit Suite to, uh, to fashion the original search films uh, but, but, but that one clip at Halieva, Sonny had a great bed of soundtracking, but the one with the bagpipes, like uh, he was wondering about it. But then when he was wondering about it, I went, yeah, we've got to run it. But instead of the, 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 the black, uh, edit flashes we do delayed long white edit flashes okay and it created a virginal sense of where Curran still was at the end of his career and that the white flashes stayed with me and during the meeting I was conscious of giving Curran some sort of rebirth, giving him the virgin capacity to do the stuff he'd never done before. And therefore, if you want, the fan from North Narrabeen Beach in 1974, the ability to see the greater surfer people had seen during this period conduct himself away in the field of everybody's dreams. So at any rate, in the course of the boardroom meeting, I described this, and uh, everyone else was under pressure as well, but I described what needed to happen. And either Claw or Brian said, and I took minutes of the meeting, as was my fashion to do, because this was, uh, four years after I'd last done the black books. So my minutes were just so tiny, but just racing through pages. 
people within the uh, room couldn't really see me doing them. And that's why I laughed my head off when I was uh, read out how the search started. <laughs> 20 years later, it was read out to me how it started. I laughed my head off because as I said to the person within the company, <laughs> uh, I took minutes, excuse me, I know what happened. Yeah. It wasn't romantic, it was vital. Yeah, but as uh, one of those two guys said, so what are you gonna call it? And, and I, I just, just came into my head, the search. Because Karen's never searched for anything outside of contest surfing in, uh, in the manner of uh, finding waves. And there was a shuffle in the room because it was a bit dog-eat-dog at Rip Curl. Uh, I don't think that many people in the boardroom wanted to see me succeed because I was the only guy working out of the Sydney office and Torquay could be a little claustrophobic in a very kind way of putting it. And when I said that, Claw, legendary for jumping up and down whenever he'd uh, get stoked, jumped up and down. And I kind of went, what's this about? And that's when Singer swore his head off at the whole room and pulled out a poster from the back of, uh, that's why they were standing. They had posters, old posters behind them and I never flashed on that. Pulled out an old ex extreme skiing poster of Glenn Plake in all his day glow uh, body armor going down one of the uh, the, the pists uh, with rocks all around him, one of those shoots, and in tiny lettering from I think 1986, at the very bottom, the footer said the search, and sing ding, that's when he roared and put it up and went, that's the idea we had to start with. The, oh. the name. Oh, okay. That's the name. I plucked the name out of their minds. That is crazy. So anyway, um, they had to lock in a business plan within 48 hours. I mean, it's to think that the bank's breathing down your neck, there's that little time that you could not only conceptualize a marketing strategy and really a brand identity, implement it, and then receive the benefit from it within a short enough span of time to rescue the company yeah. is really remarkable. Well, yes and no. It's amazing. How many people getting back to Keck would be thinking in real time throughout their careers, through day and night in dreams, two words, if only. So I've got into that boardroom still with that mindset, if only. If only there could be change. Now, I kind of uh, put the boot into your observation about the tour and uh, how to this day you could change the system by saying bullshit. If only, it could never happen during the course of any normal company, any normal sports administration, because necessarily there's an entropy, an implosion of the ability, as, as we're seeing in the Western world today, with the difficulty of uh, the democratic system. There's a wedging, there's an implausibility, if not impossibility, to change based on left bank or right bank. 
People cannot do it. These were moments where things can happen. Before these moments, it was really uh, getting way back to Peter Druin before the uh, 77 Stubbies contest and man on man with effective physical cheating. It was that long since a surfer could forget about if only. Things were happening dramatically. But from Druin until uh, the embers of the, uh, the Wills, Campbell, Slater, Beshan, Garcia with a bit of hockey thrown in, world title came about, no one had been able to say if only with hope attached. Hmm. And that was at the base of uh, Beshan's comment. He spoke for anyone willing to consider uh, the difficulties that the tour was in. It was technically uh, bankrupt at sure. the time. The individual companies were basically holding it up. It wasn't in crisis, yet there was an underlying fragility to the whole thing. Uh, again, not all that different than modern day. Yeah. Well, when I heard the figures of what the WSL and the final year of the ASP had been putting into the uh, the operations of the tour, I was absolutely gobsmacked. At how large the deficit was? Well, to my mind, it seemed as if the deficit was as much as they were putting in. It was just extreme. Yeah. Yet when one is at the behest of an incredible philanthropist, uh, that kind of uh, flies out the door. Right. For um, a certain period of time anyways, you know, I don't know how long a philanthropist is willing to uh, support a project. In this case, having not met the couple, I would be quite astounded if the plug was pulled on the philanthropy because of their apparent immersion in the culture of surfing. They've become part of the the fabric. I wouldn't say machine. I doubt that they are machine people. Yeah. Well, good. Let's keep the party going then. Um. Well, getting back (laughs) to the bullshit. No no comment on that. Um, So Matt Warshaw mentioned to me that um, you surfing your way to seventh in the world. We haven't even talked about your own surfing background, really, but you surfing your way to seventh in the world the year after you lost sight in your eye due to a surfing accident is one of the greatest accomplishments in pro surfing history. Can you firstly tell me about that accident? I know it was during a contest, but I've never actually heard the story of how it happened, what exactly was going on on the wave. And then also um, tell me how that trauma led to such professional success the very next year. Uh, I entered the water against Mike Savage. 
another one of the great guys in uh, pro surfing. Sav, who went on to great success around Laguna with uh, the South African contingent who came over just after Mike Thompson. Uh, he's one of three guys. I mean, Keck's a nice guy. Uh, I didn't get to know Keck that well, though. But he's one of three guys in pro surfing who are genuinely lovely people. The other being Mike Newling and Simon Anderson. Uh, so I was against Savage. It was the quarterfinals of uh, one of the two World Tour events in uh, Durban in the days when the Bay of Plenty was like first groin Kira before it was obliterated as a way of just by people trying to uh, improve rock walls. Um, to put it into context, in 1980, there was a band called Wild Youth. It was a punk band in Durban. The, uh, the raging at night around Wild Youth was uh, setting the mood for, I don't know, I guess, a bit of rampant uh, attitude on the beachfront. Uh, Bay of Plenty on this day was tiny. I mean, really tiny. It was dead low tide. It was at best two feet, uh, waist high at best. I was, at the time, um, seventh. I'd had a good season. It was halfway, more than halfway through the year. Uh, I'd just beaten Shane Horan we had not been getting on well for the past two or three years in the uh, a lot of pro surfers didn't get on there was no money in pro surfing shane had just signed a three-year deal with gotcha i think it was 1980 for 10 grand a year which was vastly ahead of even mr wow it was mega money wow so there was a bit of jealousy of how well Shane was doing. Uh, it wasn't even grudging respect though, because despite not having many friends on tour, Shane was known by everyone to have been the best 16 year old that anyone had ever seen in surfing in 1977 coming through the first junior pro contest ever at Narrabeen in which Tom Carroll beat him in which Jeff McCoy had built what would have been I think easily the greatest contest surfboard through the 1970s the triple wing pin mm. I think with a flute single amazing and Shane was so ahead of the pack yet the system, and that is a really big variable, started pulling him back, pulling him back, to the point where our rivalry, which had not really been much of a rivalry in water because he was the better surfer, had come to a head because I, I'd kicked his ass the day before in a heat in which Shane, with respect, 
had come in, sought out my crew of guys, Gary Templey, Steve Wilson, Terry Richardson, Simon Anderson, Ted Deerhurst. He'd seen Richo. Richo, another fantastic surfer. And he'd said, well, I just kicked your boy's ass. And Richo said it was, it was one of the great moments of his career in which he could reply before the results were read out to Shane, sorry, horror, he's just kicked yours. You know? So, extreme respect for Shane Surfing. In fact, with revisionism, increasingly, after so many years, I'm more and more certain that yes, he did legitimately win, legitimately win the 1979 world title at Haleiwa hmm. on the greatest last day ever seen in pro surfing, when four people, Bugs, Dane Kealoa, Shane and MR, had the chance to easily win a world title. It was that close. But they started completely fucking up. I believe that Shane's call of a quick count in the judge's tower by the head judge to end the heat did in fact take place. That Shane did have a legitimate grievance that PT's last ride should not have been the last ride. That Shane's takeoff three seconds after the hooter on, on a wave that would have had him winning by six points wow. did actually take place. I was on the button at the end of the uh, rock jetty watching the heat. They were coming past me onto that last dump section uh, 50 metres away. I was just staring straight in. So despite not writing down my notes at that stage, I knew that Shane's capacity over PT was so overwhelming. Yet this was also the year in which Shane had left the Bronze Dozies and there was so much bad blood with PT, the captain of the BAs. So uh, it was a dramatic, dramatic heat. Uh, so at any, way, any rate, uh, I'd, I'd paddled out into the lineup against good Sav. Paul Nordee was the water photographer out there with us. Paul, at that stage, was a great photographer for uh, Zigzag magazine. Uh, great surfer at the Bay of Plenty too. He and Mike Esposito on the backhand with their feet positioning so close together in a pivot. Hmm. Marvellous. Uh, a lot like Rory uh, Russell. Rory and uh, Jerry Lopez also had that narrow pivot style. At any rate, the heat started. There was a lot of jockeying. There weren't many waves. I, uh, I mean, you know, 8,000 people on the beach packed in because there, was, there were no bleachers and not much sand. Uh, I got the first wave off Sav. It was a good wave. And on the best board I ever had in a contest, uh, shaped by Ronnie Woodward, who'd come in at Hot Buttered, I had every reason to expect as I was completing that ride that it could well be the winning ride of the heat. I was going so fast that I drove off the end of the embers of the wave with such speed 
that I had to jump off my board and run onto the shallow sandbar, which was less than uh, knee deep. I ran so quickly and turned around, but my board bogged down in the water as I started running backwards, pulling my leg rope. And the rest is history. All so, I remember was a flash of orange as uh, the tail first came up, the swallow, and one fin went through my eyeball Ooh. and the other fin went into my chest. Oh. A magnificent double direct hit. Now, wild youth comes into play here because apparently I can remember standing like, bang, it hit me and I teetered and Richo and the boys were on the sand or up by the car and they saw me teetering apparently just as a wave came for Sav out the back I fell down as Sav took off and then I was straight up with my arms like waving in the air as Sav fell flat in his belly and wiped out. Hmm. And the boys had just thought I'd done a dose of Larry Blair, wanking on through a heat that my opponent was stuffing up. But meanwhile, the, the fluid from my eyeball, which wasn't even blood, was running down my face and I could feel it. But I was up, wondering where I was. Temporarily, I think, knocked unconscious, but then up. And wild youth came into play because I felt in one second everything coming down my face and my wetsuit. And this was a great punk moment for me. It was a wow, fantastic moment. How good is this? Blood and guts. It's all over for me. No, it isn't. I'm coming back next year and I'm fucking well going to finish where I am on the tour at this moment. And I was certain about that. This conversation went on in one second flat. Wow. Before I started paddling back out. And in the punk sense, given that Sav was right into Wild Youth as well, as was Paul, I was going, this is what Druin dreamt of with effective cheating and I paddled out knowing that I couldn't see how I looked but fuck me dead Sav was about to and I sat on him oh I sat God. on him for 13 minutes Didn't nor D is in the water no shark nets Durban great whites nor D is increasingly freaking out at me, at the blood through the water, at the situation of someone who he thought was obviously in shock. And all of these uh, South Africans had been to army. They'd all seen, well, a lot of them had uh, either seen action or seen people who had come back from the front. And Nor D, with reason, was concerned for my safety as the, the, the clock ticked on 
Now, I was contented knowing that Sav was not going to take off in a wave. In fact, when I went in, he didn't take off uh, until about four minutes before the end of the heat. He was, he was just fucked up out there. It was great. I loved it. I came in and still, this is the Wild Youth concert the night before, I came in punked out, not depressed in the least. It was just, wow, look what's happened to me. And I'm trying to walk through an intense crowd back to the scaffolding so I could get some privacy. The sea of people were parting as I was walking through, but there was one of the great moments unfolding before me. Durban was a town of young lovers at the time. It was a time of this black comedy of hope within a flawed system, government. And there are two, I don't know, 17-year-old lovers in front of me as I'm trying to walk through. And I'm saying, excuse me, and they're lost in each other's romance. And I said it three times, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, behind them. As the horror and people are parting, they were both dressed in, in the fashion. Now, sure, there was a punk element in Durban, but there was also this trendy fashion that was just so bad of people dressing up with kind of padded shoulders and whatnot just as new age was coming in, new wave, sorry, yeah, just as new wave was coming in. And anyway, I, I had long hair and the blood and shit was everywhere. And I remember smiling like I'm smiling right now. They were both dressed in white head to toe. And I went, watch this. And I just started shaking my head. <laughs> And I watched the blood just cover their backs as they still walked on, oh. oblivious. It was just, oh, it was just so great. It was like a Jackie Gleason moment. How sweet it is! And I went into the scaffolding and, and then became uh, fully aware of my state when people would come in trying to... Uh, see how I was going and I'd tell them to fuck off. And that's when the adrenaline was still pumping but the realisation was setting in. Mm. Uh, I eventually got sent down to the main hospital, Addington, that was just down the road. And because I had an eye injury, which was quite commonplace in uh, South Africa at the time, particularly because of the violence, I uh, was sitting in the waiting room of just the general hospital and there were a lot of uh, coloured and black people there with me in states of disrepair. Now as far as anyone figured, because there was no one from the contest with me, I was just sitting there and the triage people were assuming I'd just been punched in the face. So they let me sit there with a black eye, even though it was you know, about two inches out and just a huge bulb. No one could see anything. They didn't know the severity of it? Four hours. Wow. Until 
um, I was uh, put into a ward. Uh, one hour of being put into an x-ray room before I was x-rayed. I went into uh, heavy shock during that hour in which I couldn't swallow. My tongue was just so huge. I was going to die in there and no one was uh, knowing where I was. So someone eventually came in, saw my state, at least gave me a little drink. Not much because they became rapidly aware of the injury and were unsure if, if I had internal problems as well. Uh, so my eye was going to be ripped right out instantly. I was put on the operating table about four hours after that. And when you're given the laughing gas, when you're told to kick back from 100 before you go into la-la land, I guess, I guess people in the uh, surgery must experience all types of hilarity as the person's talking. But I popped up after I got down to 95, which wasn't, wasn't meant to happen, and started um, singing a comedy refrain, uh, sorry, refrain by the uh, English comedy team Morecambe and Wise. And Morecambe at some stage would get behind his piano and sing, Sitting at my piano the other day, like that, which I think might have been an old uh, Jimmy Durante refrain from the uh, 40s. And I remember them turning, going, put him under. And then I awoke and my eye was still unrepaired because it had been discovered in another punk moment that a glorious raven-headed theatre nurse had been banging one of my best friends who had met on the beach, who was on the tour with me, no names mentioned, throughout the three days of the event. And she had looked and gone, I know this guy. You can't just pull his eye out. Don't you know who this is? Uh, I hate to say it, but she's just given the surgeon the finger and gone, big chance for South African medicine. So they wheeled me back down. They've called up, I think it's called Grutescure, which was Christian Barnard's uh, hospital in Cape Town, okay. the heart transplant surgeon, and went, okay, you got Barnard, the heart transplant guy. What about doing a job on an eyeball that's never been seen before in the world? And they got a guy up. And he performed uh, 10 hours after that, an operation that no one had ever seen in the world before. Uh, 170 stitches at the end of it through the eyelids and the eyeball. Now, a week later when they uh, put me in front of the machine, what do you see? I could tell they were in shock. They couldn't believe that it was dead black to me, that I seen, saw not even a murmur of light in my eyeball. Couldn't believe the great operation had been a complete failure. 25 years passed. I woke up one morning, 3 a.m., and I went, oh my God, now I remember what happened. 
And to put this in, into perspective, I know this is rambling on. No, it but isn't. It was a few months before I was due to go back to Durban. 25 years later, I went straight to Durban, went straight to the hospital, went straight to the ophthalmology ward where everything was now in a state of complete decay uh, post-apartheid. The medical system had completely collapsed. There were 20 people in that waiting room and no one at the counter to talk to them. Chaos. I wanted to find someone, anyone, who was in the hospital to know if the professor who had organized the surgeon to come up from Cape Town was still alive even. But I had to go out empty-handed. I wanted them to know why the operation was a failure. At about 6 a.m. that next morning, back in 1980, I heard a voice. Derek! I was still under. And as I came out, I opened my mouth I remember being told you're not to open your eye for a week. It was the raven-headed nurse and she stuck her tongue down my throat and pashed me. And I was dark, it was blind. I was told not to open my eyes. She had her way with me. It was like she created the savior but then also created the shock in which both eyeballs just went bang, wide open. Oh! All the stitches at the back of the eye just split open. And I wasn't to know for the next 25 years what had happened because I'd wiped it from my memory. Wow. And I was still kind of under. Just wild. Do you think she had any awareness that um, that you ripped the stitches out in that moment? Lust in the history of mankind has always conquered logic. She wanted her little bag of flesh. And mate, you could write a book on what had been going on in those three days with my mate. Right. Oh, unbelievable. This woman. Oh, my God. And she was so gorgeous. She looked like... A combination of more Tisha Adams and, I don't know, someone from modern day. But she was just wild. Hmm. At any rate, to, to cut back to, I guess, the future in the next year, uh, I was back surfing in uh, 10 days upon my return. I was uh, in the water at Newport Peak, which at the time, we had a lot of surfers in the top 30 for a tiny little beach, it was quite extraordinary. Uh, and people were doing me a great favor when I paddled out there without zero, with, sorry, with zero depth of perception. I couldn't even duck dive away of not knowing how far the foam was away from me. Uh, in that half an hour out there, Michael Twemlow, who was uh, a best mate of Tom Carroll's, like Gary Green, incredibly toxic in his humor. Uh, he was paying out on me nonstop about being a cripple and how it was all over for me. But he was doing me an incredible service because he was getting me mad. And I was paddling for waves, standing up before the wave had even come. I mean, before the, it had even lifted up. 
I was wiping out left, right and centre until I got it. It came to me instantly, a left-hander. The photographer, Bill, Bill McCausland, who then went on to create uh, Gorilla Grip and uh, that quite big empire of his, uh, FCS, all that type of stuff, he took a photo at the end of the section of my first wave. And it was a great fucking photo. Hmm. Major, like, uh, travelling re-entry. Not a floater, but close to it. So I went to uh, France uh, the week after that and did okay. That was when Richo was over there on a tear. He was in a lot of form in 1980, but was denied the opportunity to go in the World Amateur Titles, the one in which Curran won the juniors and could well have won the Opens had the uh, time not been extended way out by the judges. Glenn Rawlings held the uh, lead through 30 minutes, then uh, Curran held the, held the lead, uh, and then Mark Scott at the very end got away to win. But uh, I still uh, gave it a miss for the rest of that year after France, because I just, I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. uh, that next year, I was third after the Australian season, and uh, did very well in, um, in uh, Japan again. Um, it was eighth going into the final event, the World Cup. Now Potts, this was the year when Potts was the 15 year old Wunderkind. Unstoppable, better than Shane had been. Uh, he was a combination of Shane Horan and Dane Kealoa at their best. Now for anyone old enough to remember those two guys, speed, dexterity, and power. This kid had the works. We'd been told that year, 1981, uh, or 82, 81, yeah, 81, we'd been told upon arrival, MR had been told upon arrival at Durban. We'd all been tuned, forget about it, it's all over. This kid, Martin Potter, is better than anyone's ever been. He'd been tearing up these tiny little pro events for the past three months, having come from nowhere, from being a grommet that summer, December through January, to being unstoppable uh, March into April, to being ready for everyone when the World Tour came. He was going to win both events. Uh, I think MR won one and, uh, and Shane won the other. He marched through the field. I was Shane, I was uh, Potts' first ever scout, man on man. I wore a patch into the lineup just to try and freak him out. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to beat him clean. Dean Hollingsworth uh, was against, I think, Bugs, I think, in the heat before. And uh, Dean Hollingsworth beat Bugs which was, I think, Bugs' first ever first-round loss. And Hollingsworth blew it for me because it was getting towards the end of the heat. He's looked at me and just paid out on me in front of Potts. Going, come on, you don't need to wear that. You know? Mm -hmm. And I didn't. And I think, 
Plus, I probably can't remember that conversation. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I didn't need it, and I was ahead of Potts with uh, 20 seconds later, just uh, 20 seconds to go in the heat, just because it was still hustling days. Hmm. And I'd hustled him, and I was ahead of him, and I caught my last wave, and I flicked off, knowing before I even looked out the back that all the kid needed was a wave half as good as mine to kick my ass, and he picked it up. You know, and, there was, and of course he was going to beat me. Uh, through that event, Gary Tipley, Richo and myself were walking down to an event. I think, Sh uh, I'm, I'm calling it Shane all the time because Shane was so good. But Potts was in the process of surfing against Dane Kealoa. And one of us said to the other, because us three were, were the three or four guys that could pull 360s. Uh, Dane was the other one. One of us said to the other, I'll never forget it, at least the little bastard can't pull a loop. And right then, he drove, he was on a wave, drove with speed and power, a complete loop, midway through the wave, and kept powering down the line. And I'll never forget Gary Timpley's uh, laughter. Like, a very kind laughter, kind to us, you know, like, boys, we know it's over, hmm. you know? Just absolutely wonderful. But in the World Cup, uh, I was eighth, uh, and then got the semis and uh, snuck a seventh, which was just a fine cap, and Potts went from seventh to eighth. So to me, it was quite poetic. Um, who won the heat where you injured, where you had the accident? Oh, Mike Savage. Oh, he did? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end. Gotcha. Is there any imagery that exists of that incident? Wow. I mean, three years later, I don't know why they didn't tell me that next year. They probably thought it was going to affect me too much. The South African Broadcasting Corporation was not only there, but a camera was down on the sand, ran up to me. I didn't know this. Mark Price's father, a doctor, was the first down there when I came in checking me out. But what I didn't know was the camera was right there. That footage was shown in those days there was a newsreel before all the films. South Africa was a really primitive country in that respect. That was still showing the newsreels before the main features, 10 years after that had been forgotten about in the rest of the world. Technicolor footage of my eyeball for months after that in the South African cinemas. No one told me until years later, in which case they'd taped over the whole lot. Oh, man. So you never saw it? No. How great it would have been to have seen that. I mean, there had to be so many, no. not as many cameras as today, but there had to be cameras. No, we're getting to another era in which um, there's no record of how good or bad I surfed on the tour. None. And I put Richo in that as well, because Richo was fantastic in that era. Yeah. Um, we both had the cuddies, a lot of speed in our surfing. Richo as well had the Shane Horan uh, tube snap <clears throat> going in which he could come from cut back into a tube stall or a snap. Those were the days of judges having best mates as surfers. Yeah. Those were the days of surfers having best mates as the few cinematographers who would be doing films 
It swung both ways. The cinematographers would love buttering up, let's say, the top five. Yeah. The coverage was null and void, even up until about 84. It was null and void. Well, you said there's no documentation of um, the quality of your surfing, but one of the things that Warshaw insisted when I chatted, told him I was going to be chatting with you, he said, uh, he's like, make sure your listeners know how progressive Derek was as a surfer. Like now I think everybody thinks of you as riding finless boards. That's free friction. Friction. That's another story. Free friction boards. Um, but Matt was like long, long before that, Derek was known for progression and his, uh, you know, double jointed, what is it? Elbows? Double jointed It has elbows? to be knees as well. And knees. I'm unsure of Slater's uh, position as far as jointedness goes, but... Uh, my knees have, uh, knock on wood, gone without uh, any problem Yeah, all the way through. So Warshaw was saying, like, fin, not fins free, but like tail release surfing, obviously the 360 that you were talking about, long before anybody else. But I really view the friction, free friction surfing as um, kind of an extension of that. That is progressive. That is... Uh, maybe not the most logical next step, but it is progressive. Well, you're the first person ever to hit the core of what I do. No one's ever got it before you just said that. In 1979, I was fully aware, now competing as a rookie on the tour, against the likes of Buttons, Spurtleman and Liddell, that they were getting completely fucked over by the judges. They were doing shit that the judges couldn't hope to understand. Yeah. Uh, Liddell does a speed loop on a board, a round tail, with the fin pushed so fucking far up the board. It blew my mind. The greatest thing until that point I'd ever seen in pro surfing, I'd been sprayed in the face by Michael Peterson, which until then was the greatest moment, right? Liddell gets a 5 out of 10 for that. He's run out of town. Oh, man. Those guys, Buttons, Liddell, 76, 77, 78 on film. Oh, God. Kelly Slater, you know. Buttons, Liddell, Slater. Buttons and Liddell were the combo. Slater was the final product. But uh, years later when I was in the uh, edit suite with uh, Jack, I guess my role in Rip Curl and uh, Jack's films became creative direction in quite a solid way. And uh, we were going over the history of celluloid and I was breaking down wave by wave, just like the black book, turn by turn, the history of surf cinema, trying to find five-star shots. And I'd come, to the, I'd come to the conclusion with Jack that there had only ever been five five-star shots in the history of surf cinema. 
one of which was Curran's wave, obviously. Uh, not many. When everything was put together, very few. And uh, I made the observation to Jack late 2005, no, early 2006, Blue Horizon. Yeah, it was Blue Horizon. I made the observation after watching footage of Scooter Boy in the 30s and the uh, Kuyo Wall uh, Pipo guy standing up in the 50s that had Tom Blake's fin never come about. Given that it took a decade for many of the Beach Boys to forgive him for destroying a thousand years of our culture, the conclusion I drew was that the height of Bertelman surfing in 73 to 74 would have been the norm of Hawaiian surfers in 73, 74 had Blake's skeg not come about. Hmm. And, and, uh, and Jack, who had grown up in Hawaii, he didn't dispute it. It was a wow moment. It was like a whoa. I mean, Jack was a great surfer in his time. He placed in the semifinals of the Makaha International in 66 or 67. He got to the world titles in uh, uh, Australia, 1970, as an alternate. I mean, that put him not far behind the likes of Reno for being able to surf. So we started talking story for the rest of that day. And at the end of that day, I said to Jack, if someone was given the opportunity, they could prove that. And, uh, and I went away and uh, within days uh, had taken the fin out of uh, one board, the fins out of one board, which had a swivel fin system. Young Mick Fanning used to ride the swivel fin systems that were very dexterous in being able to put cant or uh, toe uh, into the way a, a board was set up. I removed the fins of a Dahlberg and uh, found it interesting, but then I'd had commissioned a board built by Batty Trelaw in the spirit of Morning of the Earth for Rip Curl as a thank you because I was uh, no longer working for them uh, to put in their uh, showroom, but it was built without a fin. And I took it back because it was a beautiful semi-gun. Uh, I'd been down at Rip Curl and I'd taken it back because those schmucks had buried it in some storeroom like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I went, you don't deserve it. So all of a sudden I had a board that was 610 and uh, I took it out at the uh, little, rip ball, little rip ball that I'd been uh, utilising on my smaller board and I found that I could get line on the longer rail. And that's what, began, uh, that's what took over. Uh, months later, six months later, I hadn't told Jack. He saw me at uh, South Avalon and North Avalon. Weird, he'd not seen me surf for years. Anyway, he'd, he saw what I was doing and remembered the conversation. And we were just about at the end of uh, doing the whole film. And he just went, oh, bro, sorry, but I'm going to have to film. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the spirit of uh, Liddell and Buttons is entrenched in what I'm doing. 
When, old, old pal to you for seeing it. When was the last time you surfed with a fin? 2006. So it's been 12 years. Yeah, I'm about to uh, bow to uh, the, the will of a uh, young female surfer at Jeffreys Bay, Kai Wolf. Fantastic surfer. She was born literally uh, three meters from the sand at Super Tubes. Uh, Anthony Wolf is one of the main guys down there. Uh, she's about to hit 18. Like she's 17 on December 10. She's going to be 18 next year. And she forced me to promise for her birthday that, yep, I'd take a ball with the fin out so she could laugh her head off. Because uh, she'd never seen me ride with a fin there. And uh, uh, of course, Anthony Wolf had. And a lot of guys there have always put the boot into me about, man, really. Instead of the standard joke that people deliver at spots around the world, hey, I've got a fin in the car, man. Um, those guys, the older guys with, with substance, do tend to say, come on, let's see the old method. I uh, selfishly hope that it's documented. Oh, yeah, maybe, but it could be crap. Uh, Even still. Getting back to, uh, just to cap the end of uh, that whole early 80s vein, in 82, I, uh, I was again very highly placed after the Australian leg. Um, third. It's funny, but... Now, 30 years later, I get a phone call. And funny, but again, biggest event, it was the biggest event in the world. I was in the quarterfinals, major controversy. The results not read out for 45 minutes afterwards, thousands of people on the beach. I knew shit was going down. Now, I'd been writing for five years and I had no real friends on that amongst the judges because I was putting the booty to them, amongst the surfers, uh, I stick my hand up. I've been a bit too caustic. 30 years passes, I get a phone call. Uh, you won't know me, but my name is, well, Jim Bradley, the only trusted man in the administration of surfing. Uh, I can't even think of another trusted person throughout the whole world. But Jim Bradley was that because he was the inventor of school surfing throughout the world. Uh, you'd never meet a nicer bloke. Oh yeah, Jim Bradley, I've never met him. Oh yeah, of course I know you, but it was a somber voice. I've been harboring guilt for 30 years. I was forced under duress to change the scoring after a heat and I finished the sentence for him. Cronulla, 1982. It was either the uh, head judge or the head of the entire event who wanted to sculpt a particular final and he demanded the shift in scores so he could have that big glitzy final go down. So I went, yeah, well, 
thank you very much. Uh, that's water under the bridge. And I was putting the phone down and I heard, no, wait, wait, you don't understand. And I went, what? He went, I'm not a thief. I've never done anything wrong, except one thing. That, and I stole those sheets that day because I knew this was bad and one day I would have to seek redemption. So I want to send you those sheets in the post. <laughs> oh my gosh. Two days later, I get the sheets with arrows everywhere, this and that. Oh, talk about a circle closing. Wow. So anyway, to cut a very long story, long, boring story short, I walked off that beach, fed up, fucked up. I almost killed a pedestrian on the way back over the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I aimed for him on the pedestrian crossing and I was going to hit him. What? Because I was that, I was that distraught over surfing. Luckily, my, my younger sister and my mother were in the car and my mother actually screamed at me, stop the car and drove home. Oh my gosh. Horrifying. Wonderful in the way the surf industry has built itself up as a house of cards. And of course, it's not just uh, in competitive surfing. That's what goes on inside boardrooms. Yeah. It's the skullduggery. It's getting away with murder in so many ways. The way people are treated, the way they flout the law, astonishing. You know what though? I don't think it's unique to surfing. I think that corruption happens in um, school districts, in government, and certainly in business. At Studio 54, which is a documentary I just watched on the plane coming over, which I rate as being fine in the way it talks about everything. Really? And I, I, use, I use that as the barometer for my critique against the momentum generation. Oh, okay. And a barometer as to why I contacted Dan Malloy after seeing it. And I don't know Dan well. And I went, excuse me, but why weren't you in the film? Why was Pat, why was lovely Pat O'Connell in the film being not a momentum boy? And you, you know, and he replied to say, uh, yeah, something just told me that this wasn't going to be, well, and as it turned out, a documentary is only a documentary if it is with a decent sense of objectivity. And at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the film, that came home to roost, mm. which is a pity. If it is a feature film, then fair enough. You can be loose with the truth. But I'm completely over people not painting the history of surfing in proper light. Yeah. And the way they disrespected Tom Curran in that film, complete, unwitting, granted, disrespect for the surfer and the ride that they used 
to bed that entire film is the epitome of the momentum generation. Hmm. Not the film now, but the group of people who conducted themselves through that period. Because they came on board without sense, Slater excluded, of what had come before them. They became the arbiters in their own empire of who got what in which contract. They were so wealthy and it was wonderful, but they were one-dimensional people at the whim of a master tactician. There had not been such a master tactician since Mark Richards. And here was Kelly dumbing them all down to suit his own ends with a beautiful smile akin only to one person. Hi me from Get Smart. <laughs> but he was doing it in real life. Mm. He was just winning without competing. He was doing all the business. All the Jedi mind trick. Oh, like not too many bad bones in uh, Kelly's uh, body, but upon seeing uh, Lisa Anderson's film Trouble, uh, I can uh, I can see where he got that Floridian streak of uh, coming over the top of any situation in in any desperate surf. Right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned at some point, you just quickly kind of referenced writing. You, um, have been quite prolific as a writer for certainly a decade, but I know you haven't, you mentioned to me the other day that you haven't been writing in the last decade or so. Why not? Everything's been done. Okay. Rehashed. Variations on the theme that I spoke about very earlier about, uh, rock chord structures and whatnot. Um. There's one subject that's never been done, and that's what really happened in and outside of uh, the, pro, the immediate pro-surfing sphere. Now there's apparently a uh, publication coming out dealing with the history of pro-surfing, and this has got me so pissed off because uh, one cannot ever write about the history of pro-surfing without discussing the history of what really went on outside the uh, actual heat it's it's bad it's Lance Armstrong bad do you want to discuss any of that right now oh everyone knows it going back to 1973 in Hawaii class A drugs have been a problem then why hasn't anybody written about it house of cards shoot yourself in the head applies to everyone. Contest surfers, non-contest surfers in positions of power. Uh, man, I mean, look no further than Dave Palmenter and myself in what, 86, starting a club called On The Nod, On The Tour, which was supreme black comedy for ourselves. As far as we knew, we were the only clean guys on the tour. We'd never done drugs. I don't mean, we're not talking alcohol here. Right. We uh, decided that 
if you could convince us that it had been two years since you last took a drug, you could be part of our club. And for that, you'd get a sticker on the front of your board. So, you know, uh, it was great because uh, Gary Clisby came up, born again. Greg Anderson from Narrabeen came up, born again. I think Lambrisi came up, born again. No other born againers. No, I mean other born againers, but no non-born againers. And it was starting to ruffle feathers. Mm. Uh, there were about six or eight people on tour with logos on their boards at the height of it before Tom Carroll came up to me. And I'd, I'd co-founded Newport Plus and in 81, I think we had at one point six surfers in the top 30, tiny little beach. I'd uh, taken Tom down to Narrabeen before he had his license just to watch a surfer called Dale Egan ride the barrel because Dale was the most unstoppable cadet surfer in Australia before he disappeared up to the Gold Coast to have his uh, party ways with uh, the likes of Bugs and MP at Snapper Rocks in the, uh, around 74, 75. But, uh, Tom was close to my heart in the sense of his capacity, but I'd seen the uh, collapse of the club through the complete damage done by the uh, pushers who'd come in on the back of providing free drugs to certain individuals in return for friendship, which would then farm out influence within the wider community. So uh, when Tom came up to me and begged me pull the pin on the club, I respected his wishes. The, this was the high point of um, madness on the tour. Yeah. I could have told him where to go, but it was now not so much a joke because, I mean, the stickers were not so much a joke because they were starting to get seen in magazines. Okay. People were asking what's on the nod. And for those who don't know, on the nod means on the heroin. Not that it was heroin, it basically meant, meant on the drugs. And being on the nod as a heroin addict, that was the tag, you're on the nod. You don't know what you're doing, mate. You're just stumbling around. You haven't got a grip on reality. So I ended it. Perhaps I shouldn't have ended it. So. Cut to the present with the uh, thought of a book on pro surfing. And it's like, bullshit to that. What are you really going to say? What are you going to do? Are you going to get to the point where people's event wins and many world titles are rendered void? Is that what you're going to do with a book? I mean, think about it. Well, let's think about it. As you use Lance Armstrong as the example, there's a tremendous amount of good that's come out of, you know, um, telling the truth about that situation. And certainly titles have been stripped and all that. And that seems like like that's an afterthought. That doesn't even matter at this point because, um, you know, they've been able to rectify certain situations, vindicate certain families that have been hurt, um, 
implement new policy change that'll be better for the sport in the long run. Yeah, I got to call bullshit to that as well. Really? That guy is carrying the can of world sport the way Ben Johnson carried the can before him. It's like the great black ghost in terms of medieval appreciations of what really was darkness has been eradicated because of Lance Armstrong. That everyone else can carry on respecting new regimes. Asada doesn't know what it's doing. I mean, look no further to what Putin's doing to America in terms of intelligence. People get away with the most basic things because in any administration in the democratic system, it's open to abuse. It's the nature of a coddled beast that there is not enough authority to ensure that things get conducted under threat of a big whip. That's a problem with the democratic system. You can't possess the big whip. Therefore, people get away with being loose with procedure or corrupting a system. Not that Russia isn't corrupt, but at least in a vaguely positive way, it's got a despot who has a hint of benevolence. You know what I mean? In surfing, to cut a very long bow, you need a despotic moment, the last one of which being was Peter Druin in 77. This is the way it's going to be. Run with this. Before stuff started getting watered down and the administration came in and there wasn't any sense of left bank ability to change things up. Not just evolve things, really change things up. Now when you cut the drugs in sport and uh, Andy, the lessons that patently had to be learnt and instituted, shut the gate, didn't happen. Right. Did not happen, and I'm more disgusted right now than Shane Beshin ever was. More disgusted. I can't believe what people know and haven't spoken about since. And I wouldn't give a shit if people suffered the consequences. I despise drug use, particularly in the class A sense. It robs people's minds. Why am I so anti-drugs? Well, in 1974, 1973, I was 16, there were a gang of 12 of us at the beach. It was Wonder Years time with Kevin. We all had dragsters. We all had doggies. Our friend was a pastry cook at the local pie shop. We'd stop off at 3.30 a.m. to get a cream bun or an apple turnover. Fantastic, we'd get to the beach, we'd light a fire, we'd do this, we'd do that. We'd come in, warm up, go to school, all smoky from the, the, uh, the wonderful post-surf heat up. And uh, then one day there were four of us, four of us. And just like the Wonder Years, it was like I was narrating my own 
life. What happened to those other eight guys? Taken over the road by older guys, uh, drugging up and then straight into motorbikes and they never really came back. Uh, uh, tragic. From that moment, my wide-eyed wonder of why would you ever dump a dragster bike and a dog for hash and a motorbike just really hit me hard. Every time I'd see people smoking or hear about people doing worse, I'd go back to when I was 16 and just mm. go, you don't get it. It's all about natural mind expansion. That's what surfing's about. The moment you take drugs, it's over, forget about it. I don't care how stoked you are on the surf. I don't care what you've done on a wave. But if you think you're stoked, you're not. You haven't felt that capacity, that alpha level of the mind completely taking over clean in an extraordinary instance, and you never will. Um, it, I can't help but recognize that contradiction of uh, despising, or I can't believe, you just said, I can't believe what people know that they're not talking about but then an unwillingness to talk about what was happening on tour in the 80s and 90s in a book, you know? It comes down to suicidal tendencies, whether people have it, that capacity, or don't have it. Mutually assured destruction. Are you prepared to go down that track? Not many people are. I got back to the people doing this book because they wanted my contribution. And I pointed out to them Pandora's box. You've got to let this sleeping dog lie. If you do not, then there will be trouble. Because if your book comes out being very loose with the truth, then someone's going to have to come out and set the record straight. Mm -hmm. Now I warned a guy, an exceptional talent as a writer, exceptional, brilliant intellect. I warned him years ago, don't write a book because it's going to lead down the track to a response. Yeah. He wrote two books. There has not been a response. But it's, it's like passion. There's a sickness in the pit of my stomach, but it's not yet coming out, I guess, yeah. of my fingers on, on a page.
Derek's elusive, but he is accessible. You can find him by searching his name on Facebook, and he's actually fairly diligent about messaging. He's also on Instagram at Farfield Free Friction, and you can even order boards at fffboards at gmail.com. That's four Fs, fffboards at gmail.com, or for his finned boards, hindline.com, the project I mentioned at the opening where he's replicating his life's quiver. You should check that out, by the way, just for fun. I'm gonna read a bit um, off of his about page because I think it sums up his mindset perfectly. He says, quote, I grew up surfing Newport, midway between Narrabeen and Avalon. Newport's style was mashed, smash, and country soul because of this. I went from a 5.3 in 73 to a 7.4 in 74 in wanting a longer North Ave soul line. There was enough cross-culture shit around to never sit still with my boards. In 75, I surfed a deep concave version of the old 5.3 in trying to catch more speed and trying to hold an extended line. In 76, I went a bit radical to Nara's king of slam, Cole Smith. The result, 6.6 ultra concave twin with small skegs off wings set way back for hold and total speed. In 77, it was to Nara's sultan of speed, Terry Fitzgerald, where he built a single fin to straighten me out then on to a far reduced twin fin model of his fabled sunset single fin gun outline for edge, bite, and acceleration. Stuff the common route. To Terry Fitzgerald, I owe my career. I've linked to Heinlein and everything that we've discussed on surfsplendorpodcast.com. And I'll post footage of Derek surfing, which um, is always a pleasure to watch. And another thing that I haven't really asked for in a long time, but Feel free to rate and review these shows in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Here is one recent review from Haza007. Said, quote, I have some critiques of this podcast, but in large part, I enjoyed it. But then listening to the host show what I think must be his true nature, I just can't support it anymore. These bros are on the wrong side of history. You've lost a listener. One star. The internet can be harsh, friends, and weird, and undecipherable, but your ratings and reviews help provide clarity for potential new listeners who may be as confused as I am by that one. So thanks for doing that. All right, enjoy Newcastle. Chaz and I have a new episode of The Grit that just dropped. I will be back next week on Spit with Scott Bass, and then on Wednesday, right here on Surf Splendor. So until then, this is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get back into the ocean share some waves, and of course, shred on. By the way, I can edit anything and everything, and if I ask anything that you don't want to address, we'll cut it. Or if you want to take a break at any point to use the bathroom or whatever, we can cut too. So. Yeah, well, if, you, uh, if that gets to the point, I'll simply say...